Welcome to Blue Topsy, live from the gathering spot here in Atlanta, Georgia. Excited to be here with Eric Cohen, my co-host, my friend. And, uh, you know, just to kind of shout out real quick, the gathering spot is a private membership club here in Atlanta. It's established to bring together a network of creators, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and executives, artists, and forward thinkers together in a one-of-a-kind community. So if you're in Atlanta, if you're in Georgia, if you're anywhere around the country and you ever have a chance to come to the gathering spot, Please don't hesitate to get more information about them. Great place to be. So, Eric, this is our first show. Man, I think we're both excited. We're kind of on this countdown 30 minutes before we launch this really fun opportunity, man. What are you hoping to get out of these conversations, Jason, and all these good people that we have a chance to have conversations with? Well, I think the exciting thing is to get a new <laughs> perspective. You know, people, they don't humanize politicians and prominent people. They're cartoon characters. And this gives people that are in office, people running for office, a way for people to see a human side of them and to understand a lot of these people, they mean really good and they have a lot of great ideas and we want to show the whole perspective, everything about them, what they stand for and what they want to do, particularly for people in Georgia. So I want to throw you a curveball, okay, so All right. what's your favorite artist, favorite artist? Oh, favorite artist. Can I say like right now artist? Nah, you got you got to you got to give me like like an all. I mean, you don't have to give me Prince or Michael Jackson or you know you two. I I just want fav, favorite relevant artist. What are you listening to right now? Uh, man, that's stumped them, man. <laughs> Let's see. Should I? All right, you know what I'm gonna do? Can, am I allowed to do this? Can I get to my phone and yeah. tell you what's on my playlist? Get all to right. your phone. All talk right. to my playlist. Right. I'm gonna tell you out the gate right now. I'm listening. I I always keep the Fugees on deck. Fuji's, uh, you know, that's Lauren Hill has always been one of my favorite. Kendrick Lamar stays on the playlist. Uh -huh. Love Kendrick. Uh, love ex ambassadors, man. That's 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 always the thing I pop in with the wife, man. And uh, and and, and I, I'll leave it at that, man. I'll just give you a little taste. All right, so I'll tell you, this is my latest playlist. Okay. Uh, I've really enjoyed Logic. So okay. I got Logic. I got the latest Nicki Minaj. Did you hear? The, did you see Logic's documentary on HBO? No, but I have seen. The video about the suicide prevention. You That's right. Suicide okay. prevention. So it's a good documentary. Good documentary. Uh, him and then also, if you like Logic and you like that particular topic, man, you got to check out what uh, Macklemore did on the opioid crisis. Yeah. Phenomenal guy, man. I support Macklemore. Shout out to Macklemore wherever he is right now. Latest dude that I totally dig, Post Malone. Post Malone. Man. That's You know, Post Malone has a concert coming up. In Atlanta, I'm 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 not a huge Post fan. My kids are. Yeah. I only know probably one song from Post, but uh, you know he's obviously picking up a lot of momentum, man. He's he, he's a fun guy to listen to, though. He's been my new go-to gym guy. And so <laughs> one of the kids I come home like, hey, I'm listening to Post Malone, and Josh is like, you listen to Post Malone? Wow. Yeah, I'm not old, dude. Yeah, when, whenever I listen to a song, my kids listen to. I get that weird pause. And then they look at me crazy, and I guess they try to have fun with the music. But outside of that, man, you know, one thing I'm looking forward to, I was 21 years old the last time Democrats were in control of the state of Georgia. That was 19 years ago. I'm telling my age. But, uh, you know, funny thing is, I remember when Roy Barnes, to some people's perspective, made the fatal decision of removing the Confederate battle emblem off of the uh, Georgia flag, man. Where were you when the transition and the turnover took place? So 
Um, I moved to Georgia. I'm originally from Connecticut. Okay. I lived in Florida for a short period of time. Moved to Georgia. I moved to Macon. My first election, I voted for the Clinton Gore ticket. Wow. What's uh, that? Peach County? No, that was Bibb Ma- County. Bibb County. Bibb County. Bibb County. Okay. But I guess now, if I if I'm correct, it's Macon Bibb County. I yeah, Macon like, Bibb County. It's like Athens Park where they. There you go. Into. Okay. So '98, I voted for Roy Barnes. Interestingly enough, my wife, her uh, children of Roy Barnes, went to the same high school as my wife. Wow, pretty so, interesting. So that's, that's a fun fact. That is a fun fact. I grew up on Fort Benning, Georgia. Man, I'm a son of a military kid, so I have a the, the very unique perspective similar to you of living in a nether big city outside of Atlanta. So my experiences are not solely, uh, you know, contained to inside the perimeter. You know, right. I, I've had a chance to live uh, as far south as Columbus, Georgia. It's brief stint in Savannah when I was Bernie's political director, okay. but uh, as far north as Forsyth where you and I live. Okay. So obviously it's good to have more perspective than just the uh, Atlanta proper. And I think that's something that we're going to do with the Blue Thompson podcast. We're going to let people here, ITP, understand that there are people all over the state and they're struggling or the fact that there are Democrats. There's lots of people right inside the city and they think if you're 20 miles out, if you're 30 miles out, Democrats don't exist. They do exist, but they kind of feel like they're in the shadows and it essentially we need a coming out for Democrats across the state, and we want to show them that things can be done. You can galvanize people. Things can be accomplished. But I want to go back to something you said. <laughs> so Roy Barnes, uh, my wife and I moved down to Florida in 1999. Okay. And so I was hearing all about Barnes from Florida. And what I thought was an interesting perspective was it seems like in gubernatorial politics here, issues of substance don't seem to win out. It always seems to be that it goes to something that really is like inane or something just nonsensical. So when we saw the flag controversy going on, yeah. I was like, Roy Barnes looks like he's going to lose the governorship. And it looked like he was threading the needle. He said, all right, I understand the stars and bars. I'm going to appease the Democrats and more progressive types and say, listen, this is a new Georgia. That shouldn't be on the flag. And then he heard from the other side, who's like, that's heritage. We need to have that represented. So you come up with a flag with flags. A flag within the flag that gets miniaturized it. Right. And so what happens? Your left is unhappy. Your right's unhappy. And it was interesting, though, if you go back to that election, you see Roy, he didn't win. But the Democratic slate still at that time, outside of Roy Barnes, still uh, was reelected. Well, and I think something that's interesting is the great dilemma of the South. Uh, I remember coming to Atlanta and one of the hallmarks of being in this city was, you know, going to Stone Mountain. And unless you really know the history of Georgia and Stone Mountain and the Confederacy and the, that backstory, uh, you, you kind of get caught up, I think, in this uh, this cultural struggle that folks in the South, particularly folks of color, have had being in the South. Because let's just be honest, there are a lot of things, whether they're known or unknown, that exist that unfortunately, you know, shape our opinions in many different ways. And I remember uh, never really having a problem with going to Stone Mountain until I got older and started understanding more of the history of it. My family, I'm first generation, one generation removed from immigrants. So my family migrated here from Barbados. My grandfather was a diplomat to the United Nations. So I didn't grow up in the 
you know, segregated South. You know, I was born in Boston. You were you were from Connecticut, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I grew up in a in a state where, you know, racism was more institutional. You might not have seen uh, flatbed trucks with Confederate flags on the back of them. But, um, you know, I grew up in the era, man, as a kid watching the Dukes of Hazard, Right. And 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 looking at the Confederate flag is just the symbol on the top of Bowen Luke's car. Right. So when I got to the South and started realizing these symbols that existed, whether it was, you know, a county in the state named after a segregationist or Stone Mountain, which was at, at one point uh, the meeting place of the Ku Klux Klan. You know, it, it really changed my perspective politically. So to your point with Roy, I think what his move did was it reignited this conversation in a good way. I mean, it cost them, obviously, right. but I think it allowed us to get back in the perspective of having this conversation because most people that don't know, if you're, if you're in Atlanta, Atlanta after 96, after the Olympics, two years before you got here, uh, it became a very transient city. Right. So we saw people from the West Coast, from up north, from the Midwest, all migrating in large populations to the South. So at one point, the South had been, you know, South Georgia and rural Georgia versus Atlanta. And then you had people move into this space for the opportunities. And I think we're at a place now where folks that may not be from the South or may not be from Georgia have now settled here. And we're now having these conversations that has brought in multiple perspectives from around the country. And it's allowing us, in a sense, to really have some of these conversations that, quite frank with you, got lost in the, uh, you know, subsequent transition of power from Democrat to what we now know is Republican domination in the state of Georgia. That is true. <laughs> I want to give a small story. Yeah. So when we moved down to Macon, I didn't realize that we had family in Milledgeville. Wow. And so what I learned was, so only my mother's mother was born outside of the country. She was born in Russia. All the other grandparents were actually born here. And then all their parents were born basically in Eastern Europe. So we moved to Macon and find out that there's all this family in Milledgeville. And I'm like, there are Jews in Milledgeville? <laughs> wow. And so we go to a, a, to a dinner there, and there are all these Jewish people. And I was really surprised. And I learned that Jews pretty much came into America, into Charleston, and as everybody knows, into Staten Island, you know. But what was really interesting was there's a family story. One of the family members, they owned a building. And the Ku Klux Klan was very active in Middle Georgia and in Millersville. And they made a deal with the family. If you allowed us to have our office space upstairs, we would ensure that we wouldn't bother anybody from your family. And that was the deal that that family made. So a Jewish family was being essentially protected by those that would torment them and other African Americans, blacks, anybody, anybody that's not a client's person. Wow. Just crazy. Well, you know, the funny thing is, you know, the South has so many stories like that. Right. I mean, where we live in Forsyth County, Georgia, one thing that blew my mind was the way uh, blacks and whites coexisted in Forsyth County. You know, right. we have this stigma uh, for the last hundred plus years where, let's just be honest, you know, Forsyth County has been seen as the you know, the beacon of, of, of race and injustices in the state of Georgia out of 159 counties. I'm sure everyone has, you know, their dark parts of history. But for so long, Forsyth County has been the poster child for it. But I remember, you know, reading uh, Patrick Phillips's Blood at the Root book, 
and realizing that there were prominent ministers and, and business owners and farmers that were black and, and they lived in the county. And, you know, unfortunately, these things happen. But to hear your story and to understand fundamentally, I think what I what I respect and appreciate more than anything with what you just shared is our willingness to learn about this state outside right. of what makes us comfortable, right? right? To learn about the fact that Milledgeville was actually the capital of Georgia at one right. point, right? So to, to, to understand, you know, Fort Benning, Georgia has the largest uh, military installation in the world. To understand the history of the port in Savannah, to look at, you know, how uh, counties throughout this state have done so much to contribute to what we now know as the metro Atlanta region. So, you know, I'm looking forward to having fun. I'm looking forward to having a bunch of different guests and ideas and opportunities. And I hope that as you guys listen to what we have to share, you share your stories with us. Uh, we'd like to share those stories with the world. So hopefully Blue Topsy will be that platform for you and our guests will inspire you. They'll challenge you, but they'll also allow us all to act and to do something rather than be on our couches on Monday morning critiquing all the things that we've heard. Join us, contribute, have fun, and take this journey uh, as we enter these midterm elections. Welcome to our inaugural conversation, Blue Topsy, which will be a podcast that hopefully connects Georgia. We got a lot of counties here, Eric, 159 to be exact. But today, um, man, I'm ecstatic to have a friend and someone that is Georgia grown that has uh, contributed so much as family himself. And outside of all the things people read about in the politics, he has a phenomenal family, man. So at this time, I just want to say hello to my good friend, Jason Carter. Hey, Daniel. Thank you, man. <laughs> well, look, man, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, uh, waste any time, man. I want to first start by just asking, how's your family, man? I mean, how's how are the kids? How's your wife? Just read a huge article about your grandfather and how modest he's living and how 72 years of marriage, man. I mean, I'm, I'm on 16, so we've got a long way to go, man. But how's everybody doing? Well, I'm, I'm on 17, wow. which means you'll never me catch me. Yeah, you'll never man. catch me. <laughs> um, no, my grandparents are doing great. Uh, folks ask about them a lot. You know, I, I, I'll just to tell you two quick things. Number one, their relationship with each other is truly remarkable. And the things that they have shared over the 72 years they've been married um, and the changes that have gone on in their life and in the world since that time. And the thing that is the most remarkable about my two grandparents, of course, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, is that they really haven't changed who they are. And that piece that you just referenced, that was in the Washington Post in August, um, it really captured them, I think, better than any other article I've read about them in forever. I mean, they are just country people. They are just like everybody else's grandparents, you know, and and uh, that aspect of them and the, the way that that comes from their faith and their uh, understanding of who they are and their small town Georgia values and all that. I just think it's remarkable. Um, well, well let, let me read something for those of you have, that have not read the Washington Post article. One particular thing that stood out to me says Jimmy Carter finishes his Saturday night dinner, salmon and broccoli casserole on a paper plate, flashes his famous toothy grin and calls playfully to his wife of 72 years, Rosalind, or is it Rosalind or Rosalind? Rose. Man. Rosalind. And he says to her, come on, kid. I mean, just I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to envision it, man. But how, how has that shaped you as a husband and a father, man? I mean, it, it, it cause people I don't think people separate President Carter from your grandfather and the impact he had not just on your family, 
but on shaping you as an individual? You know, it's it's complicated. Uh, you know, I, I, their relationship with each other, as I said, is truly remarkable. But um, and the kind of person that that he is, and the way that he treats people, um, you know, he he really comes though from a from a different era. And you know, his relationship with his kids and his relationship with me, uh, it's different. And you know, my family has exactly the same kind of issues that every other family has. You know what I mean? I, I we've got. We've got mental health issues. We've got addiction issues. We've got all of the things that make American families uh, the same That's right. <laughs> and all the things that make them unique. Um, and so we we confront those issues, frankly, just like every other family. And that that article in The Washington Post, it's almost like, wait, 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 this guy's normal, but he was president. That's right. And right. that's really the message, I think. I mean, so I, I mean, you know, he impacts me the same way that other people impact me. I, I try to be you know, a good father to my children and. And a, and a good husband and, and all that, but we all are um, are struggling with the same things as any other family. That's right. One of the takeaways in the article that I, I really like is they like to hate. They've lived in the same home since 1961, and then it's crazy. What was like 157 grand? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it says plenty about them. What what I think is interesting is when I was looking at Sumter County, where grandparents are, you look and see from 2016, even though it's rural. That still went to Hillary. And I wonder, the article really makes a point of essentially that's the Carter's town, and that still holds a lot of weight in that community. Well, you know, that that rural communities in this state, number one, you know, they're so much more racially diverse than uh, rural communities in other states. And so you do end up, given the racial polarization of our politics, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that later, you know, there's a lot of African-Americans in Sumter County, which... Uh, provided some of those votes for Hillary. Um, but you also have this sort of ethic among people. Um, there's always been sort of a, what I would call it, a Jimmy Carter wing of Christianity uh, that has driven Habitat for Humanity, that has driven the Koinonia Farms in the old days, um, and sort of this more progressive brand of of being a Christian the way that Jesus was a Christian. Um, and I think that you you get some of that that's compelling to people in, in, in that community, and it always has been for a long time. So it, I think that when you talk about Sumter County and you talk about uh, how it votes and what it is, it's really a microcosm for what the Democratic Party is in general in this state and some of the issues that get laid bare by our politics uh, more broadly. That's We've talked about I mean, our opening. You know, We're telling people, there's so much commonality around the state, and people want to put everybody on this team and that team. And if they look, if you have a local level, it's your schools, it's your roads, it's just the basic stuff. Everybody lives with one another, and they get along very well, and they want to have solutions to their problems. And so we're trying to figure out statewide, nationally, how do you bring that back? How do you bring back Jimmy Carter's decency to politics, essentially? And before you even answer that, Bernice King and I had a very similar conversation. And one thing she said about her father, who was assassinated, as we all know, 50 years ago, was the difference in this time is the immense amount of hostility, right? So that this this idea of decency, this idea of statesmanship, you know, what, what are you, what's your perspective on that? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think, number one, Bernice does an incredible job of clarifying that whatever the struggle is, 
it's not against other people. Right. It's against ideas. It's against repression. It's against things that hold people back and keep people apart. And if you think that the other side of this political debate, whatever the political debate is, is the enemy, uh, then you're not going to get where you need to go. And, and Bernice has been a real leader on that. I mean, you know, just look at her her pinned tweets. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think uh, for her uh, to say that there's more hostility now, <laughs> you know, imagine yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think. Um, I think where we are as a community is that we've lost the ability and almost the vocabulary uh, to have some of the discussions that we need to have because the only vocabulary that we use is this vocabulary of fighting. That's right. And I think that some of that struggle is real and we need to maintain that. And, you know, it's not about, quote, giving up the fight or about giving in or compromising our values, but it is about realizing that what we fight is concepts. What we fight is white supremacy. What, for example, what we fight is is hatred. What we fight is inequality. Uh, we're not fighting against another team. Like that team is Auburn and we're Georgia, right? Yeah. I mean, that division, I think, is is something that we all have to get over. And both sides, including my side and the Democratic Party, are guilty of really trying to to act like the other side are illegitimate humans yeah. <laughs> uh, instead of people who have a, a misguided perception of the issues. Well, I mean, that, that, that's a great point. And you said your side of the Democratic Party. And the last time we had a Democratic governor in Georgia, I was 19. Well, no, I was 21. Uh, long You're time getting ago. old, man. Hey, man, I'm getting wiser, bro. You don't look wiser. old, man. I mean, I know it's radio, but don't shy away from TV, hey, man. man. You still I'm, look I'm, pretty I'm, good. I'm going to embrace it, man. And But, you know, the funny thing is, one, you know, and I've shared this with you in the past, I man, it was, it was an honor running with you in 2014 because I, I literally – remember in 2008 when a long shot Senator Barack Obama ran and inspired a bunch of folks. And here comes this this guy that, you know, is the grandson of a former president, but you weren't in his shadow. You know, people, even though they said, you know, the headlines may have said Jimmy Carter's grandson, you you were your own man. And in you saying your side of the Democratic Party in three transitions from in, from uh, when Roy Barn went and, and, and worked on changing the Confederate battle emblem off the flag to seeing the shift in the Democratic Party to seeing now almost, what, two decades of not having Democratic leadership. What is that side? And, and, and since 2016, with the Bernie and Hillary, you know, kind of clash, if you will, what does that side look like? What do we do to embrace the evolution of our party, especially as more young people that don't come from the era of Jimmy Carter and John Lewis that are making their own name and they're really making a mark? How do we bring these two sides together and really rebuild the kind of party that can win? So it's, it's, it's funny that you should ask the question like that, because when I was saying my side, I was saying as opposed to Republicans. Oh, <laughs> and so I love that, that like that, that just is so indicative of where we are as a party to think that that I, that you were ex assuming. And, and frankly, it wasn't a bad assumption that there were divisions within our party. Yeah. I, I, I think that's an issue. Um, but I think ultimately who we are as a party is a party that's committed to learning how to live together. Right. That's, right. that's sort of fundamental to me. Um, I, I saw a bumper sticker the other day that said Democratic Party, big tent, no clowns. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, and that's kind of who we are. That, <laughs> that's kind of who we are, right? I mean, the other side is just 
on some level, it, it's got this set of clowns that are people who are willing to say things just because they know it's outrageous. Yeah. Just because they know that they're, you know, I'm, I want to be politically incorrect. I want to put senators, people down. Michael Williams, man, we know that far too well. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> come on, man. Congratulations. You know, my 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 senator is Elena Parent, so wow. take that. Yeah. Um, Thanks for that one. Yeah, she's a sp- spectacular, right? But I, I think that 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 the the best aspects of the Democratic Party have always been that we bring people together from all different walks of life. And it's not just rich people. It's not just poor people. It's not just, you know, black people, white people, uh, or anything like that. It's about how do we bring all of these different kinds of people and work together. And that, that means you have to be willing to have disagreements on issues. It means you have to be willing to seek out compromise as long as folks are willing to live together. And I think that the idea that you have to, you know, uh, that that there's some litmus test for what it takes to be a Democrat. I just think that's let me ask you this. Is this the kind of podcast that's PG? Oh, no, no, no. no. Oh. This is unfiltered. OK, <laughs> well, I think that then I think that the idea that there's some litmus test is bullshit. Yeah. I think that you've got to be able um, to say, look, you and me disagree. And we're going to find some way to come together because we're Democrats. Right. And and that that faith in the value of our common purpose as Americans, as Georgians, as whatever community it is, that to me is what makes us Democrats. And that means we've got to learn how to be in a big tent. And, if, and you know, the idea that somebody's going to say, I'm not voting for that guy because I disagree with him. Look, we got to be willing to accept that, right? There's going to be people that stay home because they don't like my position on X or Y or because they don't like Stacey Abrams' position on X or Y. But that doesn't mean that we can't work together at the end of the day. So that's just part of who we are. We just got to be willing to accept volatility, man. I agree wholeheartedly. You brought up something, Eric, about the, 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 the what's the vote that Jason made at one point. With, yeah, uh, so that, that's a great Being segue. from North Georgia, by the way, so we're going to... Okay. So... In 2014, you got heat because of HB60. And you basically had Democrats and liberals who said, well, you took a vote that basically stood with the NRA and with guns. They didn't want to listen to any explanation about why you made that vote. So, first of all, to clarify, like, why? tell everybody <laughs> yeah. like what that bill is about and why sure. you voted for it. So, so I, I'm glad you asked. And this is one of those things where you know, uh, oftentimes I hear Democrats or liberals or, you know, in town folks um, talk about, uh, you know, l- long ago, uh, Howard Dean and then even more recently, Barack Obama got criticized for saying that all Republicans care about back then, you know, guns, God and gays. Yeah. Um, and what's really interesting is sometimes that's all Democrats care about, too. Right. <laughs> I mean, and so we, we we act like that, that 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 those cultural issues define the Republican Party. But in a lot of ways, they define our party, too. And, and so. Here's what I think about. There's no issue that's more polarizing, I think, in our community as Americans than guns. We can debate about abortion. We can debate about some other things. But guns is is incredibly polarizing. Um, So what this bill did uh, in those old days uh, is it said that each community. So, for example, a church in Waycross, Georgia, or a church in in Blue Ridge, Georgia, could make its own decision about whether to allow guns in their church, in their in their sanctuary. A church in in Clayton County, or a church, my church, I go to Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. That that Shout church, out to Reverend Warnock. Yeah, <laughs> Warnock was one of the people that was real mad at me about this, um, <laughs> but he also is one of the people who listens to me about it, right? I mean, and so it, but. The, the point is, is in my view on an issue like this, people who live in in uh, 
in, in Waycross ought to be able to make their own choice and people who live in Decatur ought to be able to make a different choice. And to me, it's about finding common ground. I also believe, frankly, that if we can expand people's rights in ways that make sense, uh, we should do it. The Constitution says what it says about the right to bear arms. And we can all debate about whether it's good or bad. But, you know, to me, if you're going to err, you err on the side of freedom and then you come and you deal with the consequences of that freedom. And I, I think that we can do that. But the only way we're going to do that is if we have common ground. And this particular bill uh, said, look, let's let people decide for themselves within their own communities how they want to address guns. And there's no doubt that those communities address them differently. That's what the bill did. Right. Yeah. You want to hear about the reaction to it? Yeah, of course. We, we, we canceled fundraisers. We had people bail on everything. Didn't matter. The bill back then, both sides of the gun debate uh, had an interest in making this bill sound extreme. They called it the Guns Everywhere bill, That's right. um, et cetera. Uh, and, and in addition to churches, it was, it, it allowed bars, schools. not schools, but bars and, uh, and, uh, bars could make their own decision about whether to allow guns in, in there. So in Decatur, no bar allows them. And in, again, in Waycross, people, bars can have them if they want to. Um, and so that this quote guns everywhere, uh, discussion, the NRA said, yeah, yeah, it's a guns everywhere bill because they wanted to declare victory. And the left said, oh my gosh, it's a guns everywhere bill because they wanted to talk about how outrageous it was. Um, and that d demonstrated the polarization of the debate. But I had a huge number of people uh, come to me and say, look, I agree with you on education. I agree with you on, on expanding Medicaid. There's 687,000 people who, if you get elected, will get health insurance. But I can't support you because of guns. And, and to me, it, it was just one of those things that just shows how deep those cultural divides are and how we all have to learn how to bring people together on the most polarizing issues. So how do Democrats... Republicans basically, like in Georgia, they go, guess what? They're against guns. They want to take your guns away. And then they said, Barack Obama's a black guy. He's going to take your guns. There are going to be no guns. What happened? Gun ownership, the amount of guns sold skyrocketed under Obama. So we know that's not true. How do we get through to gun-holding Republicans and say, guys, we're not going to do that? And... Most Democrats are just talking about sensible things. And if you want to boil it all down to one thing, the Second Amendment says there's a right to bear arms, with the, especially with the construct of the Supreme Court. That's not going to change. So how do we pitch it? How do we go to them? Guess what? We're not here to take those. We might want some sensible rules, you know, maybe just a background check, just a little something. We're actually here for health care, for all these other issues that are incredibly important. Yeah, I mean, one one thing is how much of, of our energy as Democrats do we spend on different issues? What is it that we, what's our issue selection process? And look, I, I think guns are an important issue. I think gun safety is an important issue. I think ensuring that, that criminals can't, don't have access to, to, you know, huge magazine assault rifles. I think that stuff is important. I think it's crucially important. Um, but I think we have to decide how we're going to get where we want to get um, on those issues, right? And what one of the things that you know is on an issue like guns, we can't keep doing what we've been doing uh, and expect to get a different result. Um, and so we've got to find ways, I think, to bring people together, which is your point. How do we reach out and, and across these divides? Um, but part of it is, you know, if we start talking about issues, and I frankly think Stacey Abrams is doing a good job of this right now, uh, is, is, is talking about issues on which there's real agreement, right? You know, we're talking about education. You want to walk into rural Georgia and have a conversation about something that matters, go talk about education because it matters to every single person there. That's right. You want to talk about Medicaid expansion, 
go talk about Medicaid expansion because it matters in every single one of those communities. And and frankly, you know, if if we are doing those things and if we are focusing on bringing people together, um, then I think that that we can start there. But if what we talk about is only the most divisive issues, then we're not going to be uh, seen as trying to bridge that gap. It's almost like drawing a line in the sand because, you know, I think it's the numbers, 1.8 or 1.9 million people in Georgia, almost 20% of our population live at or below poverty. And, you know, I, you know, I, I have had the esteemed privilege of being the son of a United States Army Ranger. I grew up in Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, so far before I moved to Atlanta to go to Clark Atlanta University, uh, you know, I, I was in Columbus, Georgia, Muskogee County. You know, and so I learned Georgia outside of the perimeter, right? So I think to your point, you're absolutely right because too often I think what we've done is been where we're comfortable. I mean, I caught hell for moving to Forsyth County, you know. I mean, I'm, and I'm still catching it. But I remember, you know, which is a whole nother show for a whole nother day. But you know, I remember um, Congressman Lewis told me uh, he said, you know, that was the county that Dr. King and I didn't go to, you know, and he said, but Daniel. You know, he said, sometimes you got to go where it's uncomfortable so that we can expand our borders. And I moved to Forsyth County initially. I was running for the public service. Well, I was considering running for the PSC. Uh, at the time, Steve Oppenheimer was running uh, in the metro area against Chuck Eaton. And I decided, let me move a little further north. And uh, schools are great, communities are great. It's a much different place than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. But it made me understand fundamentally the importance of going into areas that might not be as comfortable, but where you would need to listen to understand and not to respond. I mean, I think your race as a as a, a black man for state Senate in Forsyth County, which to your point, I mean, my family grew up going there for marches, Yeah. Um, you know, against uh, the KKK. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, and where to your point, John Lewis and and some real courageous folks didn't want to go. Uh, to me, the fact that you did that is just a demonstration of number one, the kind of person that you are, which I appreciate because you want to bring people together. You want to seek out connections in places where you're unlikely to find them or where you think you might not find them. And I want to come back to that concept. Yeah. But but it also just just demonstrates the reaction that you got. The number of people that looked at you and were like, wow, like. Yes, I have a, a theory in my head as a as a as a Forsyth County, you know, self-described conservative white person of what it is that these black Democrats are doing. Yeah. And to have you stand there, talk to people, make that human connection, make them see and understand you're you're you might not get every vote, but you're expanding people's understanding. I just think that that effort that you undertook was so valuable. Um, and I loved it. You know, I, we, we you know, we followed every minute of it. We had you at my parents house for yeah. a fundraiser and everything else. But. I think that we need more of that. You know, and, and, I, and I do want to come back to what you said, because I was in Raven County, Georgia, uh, recently. You know, this is right on the border of the Georgia-Tennessee line. And uh, over 500 people came out and excited. And the main thing they said to me before I left is, will you come back? Right. And, uh, I, you know, I, I think you and I have done a really good job of, of trying to maintain not our relevance, but we, we want to let people know that in or out of a political season, we're here and, and we care and, and our families are important. But the one thing I admire about you, I got a shameless plug, but one thing that you guys should know about Jason is uh, I, I think I can get him to do just about anything any day of the week except weekends, right? So Jason will tell you, um, you know, with a very serious face and a smile, 
that he'll be willing to come out, show up, and do it as long as it's not on a Sunday. And uh, I, I appreciate it because my wife, who's listening now, uh, is is very intentional about reminding me to come home for dinner. And uh, I've had to I've had to have a lot more balance. Look, I'm not trying to get Daniel in trouble at home, <laughs> but I did tell him I couldn't do that because I had family time on Sundays. <laughs> and, and, and it's fun though, but I, I think that speaks to you know the the, the kind of segue I want to make. Um, I want to touch on race and justice. I mean, we're we're gonna we're gonna come back and talk about this convention and you know great people that are out here running. But Dr. King once said that the true measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands in times of challenge and controversy. And we, for a long time, have had Democrats that, quite frankly, weren't comfortable about talking about certain issues, and we neglected our base. You know, when you have 94% African-American turnout in every single election, you tend to feel that you don't have to work as hard for those voices. You don't have to work as hard to reassure them. Uh, I'm sure our spouses, Eric, you know, Jason, and, and myself included, um, you know, what it, what it took to get them, it takes to keep them, if not more, right? So I think one thing we have not done a good job about as it relates to democratic politics in the South is really dealing with the issue of race and justice. And I wanted you to just you know, share your thoughts because uh, we live in not just a hostile society, but a very racially disenfranchised time where just the mention of Black Lives Matter or the mention of a police shooting, people think that, you know, you, if you're either, you know, for the black community or you're for the, for, for, for the, for the cops. And I don't, I don't think we have to pick a side because there are great people that are in the community that are standing up for the right things. And I think the message has been hijacked. So, you know, uh, of course, you're asking a big question. And, and I think that, you know, again, one of the biggest problems that we have in our politics is we don't really have the vocabulary for a real discussion sometimes about things like this. Uh, it's hard. You know, everybody's afraid of being called a racist. Uh, not everybody, uh, but, you yeah, know, some people uh, embrace it. <laughs> all of a sudden there's people who embrace being called a racist. Uh, but that's a whole nother story. But, you know, to your point, there's no doubt that. Democrats have for a long time and for too long taken uh, African-American community for granted. Um, part of that, uh, part of that, though, has to do with the fact that, you know, even having that discussion bothers me to some extent because, you know, and, and one of Stacey Abrams's great lines that she uses is she didn't really understand diversity, she says, until she got to Spelman where everybody was a black woman. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. when you talk about the, the black community or the African-American community, even if it's in the South, you're talking about a really diverse community That's right. with really disparate interests, yeah. with a lot of different things. And yes, right now in our society, that community votes 94 percent or 96 percent for Democratic candidates. Um, and that racial polarization is real. And it has led to, to a great degree um, to Democrats, uh, you know, not doing enough, probably. Uh, to to respect and to embrace that community and the issues that it faces. But it's not one community. It's not a single set of issues, right? It, there are issues out there that are important, but, you know, you've got to sort of recognize the, the diversity of that community. And I always get frustrated when I read a New York Times article or something that says African-Americans in the South, blah, blah, blah. Because yeah, I'm like, which ones? Yeah. I mean, and how do you know? <laughs> I mean, like, we're sitting here right now in a place right now that's, that in, is in essence... Um, in downtown Atlanta is made up of, of relatively wealthy black professionals, right? right? I mean, what, what are the issues there? I mean, of course, people are concerned about, about um, you know, police uh, racial profiling and the way that you don't see white 
kids lying bleeding in the street, right? You just don't. That's right. And uh, and so we have to confront some of those things that are expressly about race. Uh, but there's a huge set of other issues that are important to the to the black community and to the democratic base um, that we can talk about that are frankly bridge issues that also are important to to uh, you know white people to any kind of people uh, around you know to to Latinos and and Asians and and all kinds of others uh, around our communities. And so so. Part of what I believe is that we've all got to get better uh, about sort of addressing race as an important factor in a, in, a, in a host of issues, but also addressing all of these other issues that are important in every community and not trying to pigeonhole this issue as a black issue or this issue as a white issue. I mean, in my family, yes, I don't have to have the conversation with my children about police brutality that you have to have with your children. Yeah. But I don't want to live in a community where that's not fair. Yeah. I don't want to live in a community where... Uh, where where the, the African-American men in that community are getting targeted by police at all, right? And so is that a black issue or is that a fairness issue? Because I think of that as my issue too. Yeah. So we, we all have to, to do a better job of leading on how we have those discussions. But the first step in that leadership is for Democrats to realize that we need to step up and do that. And not just in an election year when, you know, we, we decide that we're going to spend a whole day at the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia talking about the, the mothers of the movement and then really do nothing after that. Right. Well, I mean, so the cool thing about the conversation we're having is that, you know, I think we all recognize the importance of, of the work that has to be done. And more recently, and, and Eric, I want you to talk about some of these numbers as well. But more recently, you know, we, we were all at this Democratic convention. You know, we, we were inspired. You know, we heard great speeches. I mean, I was quite frankly um, excited, just excited about the gentleman running for Agricultural Commission and, and Attorney General as I was for the two women at the top of our ticket. And my question to you um, is, you know, how do we get past being inspired and excited, right? I mean, like you can, you know... People all the time will say, you know, well, I, I went to church and I feel good, right? Then they'll leave church and they'll say, well, well, what was it about? I don't know, but it was it was great. It was good. I feel great. And for me, I want to understand what is it that we do next? What is the next step? I mean, we, we patted each other on the back. We clapped. We cheered. We shouted. We caucused. But now what? You know, like, like what is the step that we are obligated uh, to take to ensure that what motivated and excited us is going to become uh, a motivating factor to get the over 600,000 registered and active voters to the polls in November? So I think, number one, I, I was fired up too. I mean, I think if you look, so Democrats fall in love with their candidates. And, and, you know, you, and, 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 and they do, and they want to be inspired and they want to believe that the person uh, is who they want, is who they say they are. They want to believe that they're honest, et cetera. And when they get betrayed, they, they get, they get horribly betrayed, right? I mean, the interesting thing to me about sort of politics is you watch, uh, as George W. Bush, for example, leads us into a war that turns out to be a complete disaster. And as, as many Americans are turning on him, the Republicans in the South rally behind him and sort of firm up their support. Donald Trump, the more the mainstream media attacks Trump for legitimately awful conduct, the more sort of his his truest believers rally behind him. And, and Democrats just don't do that. We expect more from our leaders. We expect our leaders to, in fact, be inspirational, to, in fact, be uh, the kind of transformational leaders that we've seen in the past. Um, and and, and we, we buy into that. And I think one of the good things about this moment 
is that our ticket uh, this year in 2018 from top to bottom, to your point, is incredible, right? I mean, we've had great public service commission candidates before, as you know, like you. Um, but, you know, Lindy Miller and these folks are doing a great job. You know, to your point, Charlie Bailey, who's running for uh, attorney general. I mean, that dude is impressive. He's a he is he is impressive in person. He is inspirational in person. He's a smart guy. And you know what? He grew up on a cattle farm in Harris County, you know. And so people don't people, you know, don't necessarily expect some, you know, white, blonde, white kid. Uh, not that he's a kid, but, you know, who was that? And he's now a grown, you know, big time gang prosecuting attorney. But they don't expect leadership for a multiracial community of folks that care about criminal justice reform, that care about all these things to be an inspirational leader uh, as as the uh, candidate for attorney general. But that's coming. Right. Yeah, Sarah Miko, Stacey Abrams. We've got all these people um, that are out there and, and can really be put in front of folks and have them understand that this movement is really real. But we have to find a way. Um, we have to find a way to convince people that we know what we stand for that we know whose side we're on, and that we have a plan for doing stuff about it. And it doesn't matter that our plan is better than the Republicans, because the Republicans are always going to be there saying, look, we're, we don't like government, we're going to cut taxes. And people are like, hey, I like that. And Democrats are always like, yeah, but we have all these other things we want to do, and we just don't have, we rely on our candidates to provide that message, to provide that inspiration, to provide that galvanizing force. In this instance, uh, you know, we we have a group uh, that I think are eminently capable of doing that. That's right. So, if, if, to that point, like you look at rural hospitals, you go, okay, you cut taxes, you cut taxes. Seven rural hospitals are closed. I was telling friends out of state, um, and I know Sarah does. She talks about extensively about medical, and what, what do we have? Sixty-three counties that don't have. Or OBGYN, somewhere in that neighborhood. And you sit there and go, that sounds like a third world country. That doesn't sound like a state of the most prosperous country on the planet. How do you, you know, how do you continue to get? It's like we have like a twofold issue. It's like we need to get people from the other side or independent minded people, and we need to get our people further engaged. And I guess, like, kind of what you're getting to, if you don't believe in government, Democrats don't matter, do you? I I think the biggest problem that we have as Democrats is we have to find more ways to respect people on the other side. We have to instead of instead of looking at rural white people or rural people in Georgia and saying, Man, these people are quote voting against their interests yeah. as though they don't know what their interests are. Yeah. That sort of presumptuousness in our messaging uh, really bothers me. And and I think that if if Democrats really begin to say, I have a lot of respect for you in rural Georgia. I care about what you want to tell me instead of me telling you what you should care about. That's that's the start. That's the start. And, and we've taken too long uh, of preaching at people about what they should care about and telling them, hey, you know, Medicaid expansion is going to be good for you. Uh, and really what we should be doing is listening. And I just I just think Democrats have have too often are too quick to give up on people on the other side. You know, and I'm so happy you said it because, you know, Van Jones, uh, before he started his messy truth show on CNN, uh, we had a long conversation about this. Van and I were in Chicago together and uh, both speaking at this really amazing event. And, he, and Van's face lit up when we talked about going to West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky. 
he, his face lit up when he talked about sitting um, at diners in towns that were thriving at one point. And there was an article that came out because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this was the 50th year since the assassination of Dr. King. Uh, it was, you know, a little over 60 days after Dr. King was assassination, assassinated, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And the one thing that Bobby Kennedy did uh, three months before he was assassinated was he went into eastern Kentucky, you know, and he went out there and looked at poverty. And, and he was very clear about what was going on in eastern Kentucky was not right. And Bobby not only was leading in the polls there, but it was a Democratic stronghold. Well, eastern Kentucky went for Trump. And uh, 50 years later, we see this gap of what I think, one, to your point, is, is arrogance. But two, let's just be frank, it's neglect. It's it's the same kind of neglect I talked about for the 94, 96 percent of African-Americans that loyally and faithfully vote for the Democratic Party, rain, sleet, or snow, is the same neglect and arrogance that unfortunately has led us to not being able to resonate in middle America and in some areas in the rural South. I mean, what would you say to that? Because honestly, I think we, we really need to understand that there are a group of folks, granted, in, in, in Mississippi, I would argue that a lot of Republican po uh, policies um, that they have voted for haven't necessarily benefited them. But have we done a good enough job in packaging, packaging something different? Well, let, let's put it this way. We've got the entire benefit and understanding of the, Demo the history of the Democratic Party and what it's done for rural people you know, from Franklin Roosevelt, even before. We've got the entire history of the Democratic Party. We've got the entire brain trust of the Democratic Party. We've got elite, smart people all over this country. And we're losing late elections to people who have almost no plan at all. All right. So whose fault is that? Yeah. You can blame the people. But can you really blame people in rural America for feeling alienated from their government? Can you really blame them for feeling alienated from their politics? I mean, I feel alienated from my politics right now. And I'm literally, my grandfather's president of the United States. You know what I mean? And like, I'm as plugged in as you can be. That you can't blame people for being alienated. But, and what I think we need to do is we just need to confront the fact that, you know, number one, we could, and this is something that I think is important for the, the narrative about Stacey Abrams' campaign and a variety of other things. We could grow our coalition to be a majority without reaching out. But why would we? Stacy doesn't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Daniel, I don't want to do that. We want to bring people together. That's who we are. We're not about building a coalition that then runs over the other side. We're about building a coalition that brings those people in yeah. and plugs them back in because just because they're marginalized, that, and they're marginalized in one way instead of another. We want those people as a part of our democracy. We just have to be committed to going to get them. I think there's a big group of people in the Democratic Party um, that, frankly, don't want to get those votes. Yeah. Um, and we've got to confront that as to who we are and, and, and really have that debate. Stacy, I think, is doing a great job of going all around rural Georgia, talking to people about issues that matter in their lives and not um, about issues that, that are going to be sort of divisive. And so I think she's really going out there and her record in the legislature and other places has been one of reaching across the aisle, bringing people together to work together. And I think I think that's important. Now, whether the media allows that narrative to, to exist out there, you know, I don't know, but we'll see. Eric, you had some numbers about, yeah. you know, looking at Jason's performance yeah. and looking at what it's going to take on Stacey's side. I mean, what I'm curious to hear is, you know, how do we really look at the last few gubernatorial election cycles 
and then even Jason, I'd like to kind of back up a little bit and look at the drop-off down the ballot. You know, we have Lindy Miller, who is a great friend of mine, who I'm supporting, and, and Don Randolph running for PSC. But let's be honest, those aren't U.S. Senate and Attorney General sexy positions that everybody runs to vote for. Um, and so I, I really want to dig into that a little bit. So if you look at the numbers, so I went through all of our general election numbers back to 90. So it's just let's take the last three cycles. So we bottomed out in 2006 when Mark Taylor lost by over 418,000 votes. By the time you ran, that gap was 200,443, and I'm sure you probably know that number. There I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm doing that. <laughs> but, but that's a 50% improvement, slightly above 50% in three election cycles for governor. So half of that gap has been bridged. What, what brings us? What gets us over the line? Is it a combination of getting? Democrats that are on the sidelines, and like Daniel and I are a good example, where we are in foresight. You have so many people that they're essentially, they're afraid to come out and say, I'm a Democrat because, you know, it's like a 75-25 mix, and they're like, my vote doesn't matter. We had the 7th Congressional District in a runoff, and the two candidates, Bordeaux and Kim, she won the runoff because she put this effort into foresight, and the foresight voters tipped it, you know, the Democratic voters. So it shows that even in races like that, your voice really matters. So it's a combination of Democrats, and then how do you get those, let's say, independents or just Republicans? Do we have to stop being so issue-oriented? You know, everything, we break everything down into every little group instead of just, like you're saying, listening. You know, I, I think what, I think we sort of fret about how to win um, a lot. And I think, of course, that's because we haven't been winning. <laughs> so that's on everybody's minds. And, and I think that it's important. But ultimately, the what what the path to victory is sort of a, a both and path, right? The, the things that are going to motivate and excite people um, to come out and vote. Um, n- number one, the the national environment does so much to determine what an election is going to be like. And I think that the most important thing that any candidate can do is to match the moment. I think that's how you know whether you've done well as a politician. You're not gonna you're not gonna be the best speaker. It's not a question of who who you know has the best ideas. Even usually, it's a question of who matches the moment that the public has. Um, and and you know right now um, you know the moment is a very unique one because the Donald Trump sort of discussion in Washington is so poisonous. Um, and because you've got sort of so much angst among voters out there about how to handle that, uh, both Democrats and Republicans. And there's so much energy in the Democratic Party right now. I mean, when I was running and Barack Obama and Daniel was running statewide and Barack Obama was the president, Democrats kind of felt good, you know, and a little bit complacent. And, 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 and now if you go to a Democratic Party meeting, even in Forsyth County, y'all tell me it's going to be packed. It's going to be people that are energized. It's going to be people that are engaged. You know, I was talking to the folks from Union County the other day. I mean, just about how many folks they had at their meetings. Cobb County has got had to change rooms like five or six times because so many people are getting engaged. You saw the John Ossoff race. You see the numbers from the primary. That kind of energy um, is, is just out there for us right now. So we have to just find a way uh, to sort of galvanize that. That will change those numbers that we have. There is going to be a, a, a much different environment this year than there's been since 1990, to your point. 
so we're going to have a unique environment there. I think the other thing is we have candidates that are, are ready to sort of match that moment. And, and are they going to be acceptable to not only motivating the people that are traditionally stay at home, but there's a much greater number of people who are available to be persuaded than there have been in the past. And so can you both motivate the folks that you believe are going to vote for Democrats if they show up, motivate them and persuade? And, and people often think that a motivation message is different than a persuasion message, but really it's just about the, the same type of, of discussion, I think, is going to do both motivate and persuade, and that is, how are we going to take this state forward? How are we going to give people what they're not getting now? Uh, and, and then are we the right people uh, to sort of match this moment uh, for the most people? And I think there's a real opportunity right now to see a lot of victories. Um, we last won Georgia in 2002 with a slave minus one. Right. So... Although that included multiple African Americans getting elected yeah. statewide in this state. So I want to I want to bring Gerber Baker, Gerber Michael Baker, Michael Thurman. Leo Sears was around there too. So one of the things I found interesting. So I grew up in Connecticut, and so you're pretty much dealing with liberalism. But mm -hmm. what Daniel and I coined a lot of times, like a latte liberalism, kind of like an elitist <laughs> liberalism. You know that we know better, and that those people down there they're stupid and foolish. And then you still see, I mean, I've been out of there a long time, but you still see that attitude, it's really pervasive, and it's in our party. How do we get it out of there? I mean, I think it's what Daniel has done in Forsyth County. I think I think the biggest quest that we've had, I was in the Peace Corps in South Africa in the late 90s when Mandela was the president. Wow. And that was a remarkable moment in that country's history. And really what it was about and what it taught me about my country is that all we all really need to do is seek out human connections in places where you don't expect to find them. Because as soon as you are the first white person in a, in a, in a, in a home or as soon as you bring uh, somebody who's poor into your house for a meal, as soon as you do these kind of things you've never done before, that you start to realize that you can find human connections in all of these different environments. And what that means is, you know, it's not just that you want to connect with other people who are like you. It's that you can connect with people who are very much not like you and who you think uh, would never have anything to add to your life. And if people can have those kind of experiences and have those kind of human connections, uh, then they're going to see that they can respect rural people who, who, who are gun owners or you know, people who have a different view than them on on uh, whatever the issues are. Um, and I and I think that's how you combat the racism that's out there. That's how you combat, frankly, the sexism that's out there. Uh, and we just have to give people those those opportunities. I mean, and I think one of the things Stacey uh, is doing so well and has done so well in the legislature. And frankly, Mayor Bottoms has had the same experience. You know, there's a bunch of these uh, conservative white male Republican legislators that just have never really had a good conversation with a black woman, literally in their lives, because yeah. they haven't been exposed to it, because they've never had that, you know, they might have had that opportunity, but they've shied away from it a little bit. And so, you know, you ask Nakima Williams, who's a state senator from Atlanta, a young, incredible leader, uh, about the conversations that she had after the whole state senate went and watched Black Panther. Sure. And she's talking, I'm serious, but she's talking about people coming up to her and saying, hey, explain this to me. And she would have these real discussions and realize, man, these folks just haven't ever had these kind That's of experiences. Right. And so 
breaking down those barriers is real. Getting in front of people is real. Uh, but seeking out those connections is real. And, and, and knowing that if you're some wealthy liberal who believes they know everything about rural people but haven't talked to one in a long time, maybe you should go talk to somebody. Yeah. You know, it's amazing you, you brought that up because I think Atlanta, you know, the, the, the film industry has kind of closed in our borders a little bit. You know, and, and when I look at what I mean by that specifically is Georgia has become the number three place in the world for film and movie. And we're now seeing areas like, you know, Bibb County and, and, and we're seeing areas like Hall County and different places around the state where folks are having to go into them and experience it. And it's it's allowing us to be in a position to interact and have these conversations. And I love what you said, not just about the connotation of, of Black Panther, but when I, you know, me being a resident of Forsyth County, Georgia, I find myself in the middle of several conversations. I mean, do you say Black or African American, right? Like people say that, you know, I have conversations with people that just want to know about, you know, different issues that the community face. And I think we're in a time now where people are just having a hard time even starting the conversation. I'll give you an example, because you said in the beginning, that your family uh, is a regular family like everybody else, from mental health to, you know, dealing with anything that you can think of. The issues we deal with are uh, part of the American story, right? And so being in Forsyth County, I remember running against Michael Williams and talking about the opioid crisis. And I remember a, 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 a white male um, had this conversation with me, and he sent a picture to my phone one day with a Donald Trump sign and Daniel Blackman sign. And, and and I mean, granted, you know, I mean, I don't I don't wear the like, badge of honor, but the fact that this I, I, gentleman, I would, I think it's great. Yeah. But but the fact that this gentleman who told me, he said, you know, Daniel, I voted Republican for four years. He said, you talked about PTSD with our veterans and you talked about the opioid crisis. And he said the stigma of the crisis. He said, I'm a wealthy white male. The majority of not the majority, but a good number of folks that lived in his his pretty wealthy Lake Lanier community had dealt with opioid and drug addiction. And he says, you know, you came out and he said, I, I didn't see you as a Democrat. I saw you as someone trying to solve a problem and I saw you as a father. And so this guy proudly put up my sign. And, you know, I, I can't, you know, agree with you more that when we're willing to have these conversations, and by the way, my campaign slogan was finding common ground. So, you know, the fact that we're not going to always agree but these small windows that open up the door to a much greater conversation is really, to me, what's going to help shift our politics. And I'm not talking about getting more Democrats elected or getting more Republicans out of Congress. I'm just saying to get us to where we can really be a, a, a country that can define itself by our acts and not by our, 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 you know, sometimes our rhetoric. How would you say we deal with, you know, we, we, we touched on race and, and, and justice but when you when you look at, you know, mass incarceration, when you look at the opioid crisis, it's not just affecting affluent white kids. It's, it's, a, it's affecting, you know, black and Latino athletes that go from painkillers to opioids, it's affecting all of us. The challenge I see is when you try to have the conversation with folks, we get back to the dilemma on race. You know, and I'll give you an example. I spoke to somebody about the opioid crisis one time, and it was a black woman, and her first response was, well, uh, when it was crack cocaine, they locked us up. And, and so I, I, it was really interesting to hear it, but how do we get past these, these walls that are not allowing us to have conversation 
about these issues that are really affecting all of our families? So I, I think there's there's sort of two parts, and we've been talking now for 40 minutes or whatever um, about bringing people together. And one of the things that I think is is just as important um, is recognizing that there's some people that we're just not going to deal with. Okay. That's and I know enough. that that's complicated, right? But look, he may have a Trump sign, right? If it's if it's Richard Spencer, who's a you know a vowed white supremacist. I mean, you know, and we can we can talk about the trouble I got in for tweeting at him after the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. But but I mean, my 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 attitude toward him hasn't changed. Right. Like there's some people that don't that don't deserve to be a part of our public discourse because what they're saying is not compatible with anything that we truly believe. Right. I'm not going to sit down and say, hey, man, if you're going to sit there and, and, and espouse white supremacy, that I'm going to sit there and say, oh, no, no, here's why that's bad. And let's get together and find common ground because none, neither you nor I are going to do that. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so and so on some level, you just have to be like, no, you know, forget those people. We're not dealing with it. But making a distinction between those people and people who I vote, I support Donald Trump or I uh, you know, support uh, gun rights, or I support, or I'm, or I'm pro-life, for example. I mean, you know, there's a giant number of African Americans that are pro-life in their life and 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 vote Democrat because um, because of other issues, right? And so, you know, I- including a, a huge number that that are you know in in the part of the Black Church that is the the centerpiece of of the political organizing, you know, in many ways that that Democrats have always done, right? So. We, we find common ground with, with people in, in a host of different ways, but how we talk about race, if we can say this group of this side, this type of discussion is allowable, we've got to give people, especially white people, permission to have some of these conversations. The point you made is people are just afraid for the most That's part. Right. And so what they do is they just, more. they just walk away. Because guess what? Being white in this culture, you don't have to confront your race most days. You can do it. It's not in Forsyth County, not in Cobb County, frankly, not at, 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 at a company that where you work most of the time, right? Like white people have that benefit. And if they are not forced to confront it, why would they? And so I, I just think that that there there has to be uh there has to be a, a realization in, in two ways to get at those people. One is you have to have more white people talk about race. Because it can't just be a black or Latino or, or minority issue. Right. You have to have white people talking about race. And you have to have both black people and white people and Latinos and others modeling how to have those discussions. And, you know, if, if someone is hung up on whether to say African-American or black, then they're so afraid of offending somebody <laughs> that they're not. How are you even going to start the discussion? Right? right. Like they know how they refer to it when they're in their house among just white people. And it may be in a very negative way. Right. It may be using words that we don't say. Exactly. Um, but but at the end of the day, I, I think that's it. You just got to model these conversations. You just got to keep going. And, and, and you have to be willing as in, in a room full of white people to talk about race. And you have to be willing in a room full of black people to talk about race. And you have to be willing to give people opportunities to have these discussions because we do a terrible job uh, in this country on both those fronts. You know, something I do want to touch on because we, we, we're getting towards that point where, you know, we're, we'll look at bringing us to a close and, and bring up some other issues to learn about what you're doing now. But 2016, you know, I was I was Bernie Sanders' uh, political director in, in the state of Georgia, and uh we saw this huge shift in, you know, really trying to understand the difference 
and folks that supported Bernie and folks that supported Hillary. And there was this huge, you know, quote unquote, fracture in the party. Uh, my question is, is it repairable? And how do we reach out to these millennials that are really the new face of this progressive movement? Well, I, I think, again, man, you got to got to listen. I mean, you know that that we've got to listen to what these folks want. And we've also got to know that the plural of anecdote is not data. Right. You've got one or two people. Right. I mean, I, I think the most compelling speech that I heard at the Democratic convention in Philadelphia yeah. when it was Bernie and Hillary was by a activist, Bernie Sanders delegate from Georgia to the Georgia delegation about why he wasn't going to walk into the convention that day. OK, I know him. I've dealt I've done a variety of things with him. He got a, he's now elected in, in the South Fulton to the city council yeah. and and. He was talking about why he was removing himself from the debate. I'm not going into that building today because of the way that I've been treated. And he did it in such a way that made every single person in that Georgia delegation think this is somebody that we can work with. And like, if you can protest, if you can protest effectively and you can say, look, we've got to have these things change and do it in a way that continues the discussion, uh, then I think we can do anything, right? I mean, and that's the, the beauty of the Bernie Sanders discussion. That's the beauty of the Democratic Party is, you know, we do, I think, for the most part, want to change the way that things are in this country for poor people in particular. Yeah. We want to we change the way that the economy only benefits, it seems, the richest of the rich. And if we're and we may have different views about how to get there and we may have other things that we're trying to deal with and and we may be frustrated with each other in different ways but as long as we're still on it and communicating and we respect both the protests the protesters and the way that and, and the goals that they have we can do it i mean I, I i just think there's no doubt we can quote bridge that gap because i don't even i think it's more a tactical gap than it is a strategic gap i agree it seems like a lot of you know, you have like a new guard, different different ideas and stuff, and you kind of have people that have been entrenched for a long time, and they're kind of pushing back. But I wanted to segue to something because it kind of gets to the goodness of everything, and that's the Carter Center. Oh. So I don't think most people out there know your role at the Carter Center. So I, so ninety percent of my time, I'm a lawyer, right? In my law firm, we've done great things, uh, and we, we we do stuff to get paid, and uh, at the same time, but you know, we've we've brought some of the most important voting rights cases in the history of the state. We've brought some of the most important racial discrimination in the history of the state cases. We've brought some of the most important gender discrimination cases in the history of the state. Um, and I love being a lawyer, but but 10% of my time about I'm the chairman of the board at the Carter Center. And one lesson I think the Carter Center has for this discussion about how we bring people together is it really operates on a, a, a politics and a a foundation of respect for people, even in the poorest, tiniest villages in Africa. So to, to talk for one minute about guinea worm disease, the Carter Center erratic is on the verge of eradicating guinea worm disease. And there's no cure. You don't give a shot. What you have to do is you have to change the way that people filter their water. That is something fundamental to everyone's life that they do every day. And so in every single village in Nigeria, every single village in Mali, every single village in Chad, South Sudan, and many other places, uh, there was somebody who decided that they wanted to participate in this effort and who went to all of their neighbors 
and said, hey, if you filter your water in this new way, uh, you'll no longer get guinea worm disease. And they taught their neighbors and they understood their neighbors enough to, to, to help them change their behavior. And that person-to-person approach is what eradicated guinea worm disease. Jimmy Carter will get credit for it. The Carter Center will get credit for it. But we all know that the people who actually did it are the single individual workers in every one of those villages. And as it has been eradicated, there were there were millions of cases uh, 26 years ago, and last year there were 12. Uh, so it's literally on the verge of being gone. Um, but the way that it was eliminated and what it's left in its wake, not only in every village in Nigeria is there no more guinea worm disease, but there's a human being who is a part of an international disease eradication program who took it upon themselves to change their own community. and. Some of the technology that we used, uh, including these filter pipes that people that nomads, uh, that, that people who are, you know, nomadic herders and others used, came from those people. And if we didn't know enough, if we thought, hey, we're rich people from Atlanta at the CDC, we know how to eradicate a disease, we're going to come into your community and do it. If that was the approach, it would have never worked. But what does work is going into those communities and saying, hey, we respect you. We want to be your partner. We want to figure out what it's going to take in order to achieve this. And then listening and empowering those people to make a difference in their own communities. Um, that's just incredibly powerful. And that's the I believe that that message brings us back to where we started this conversation, right. which is that my grandparents are from a, a town of 600 people. Back when he was there, you know, the, the people made less than a dollar a day. The average life expectancy was 50 years. That's basically what it's like in Mali right now. And my grandfather, who comes from a 600-person village, knows that if you go into a 600-person village that's far from an interstate in Mali, there's going to be people there who can change the world because that's exactly where he grew up. And I just think that perspective on all of this is about that same bit about seeking out connection, seeing the power that people have in their own communities, black, white, poor, rich, whoever they are, they can make a change in their community. So here's what I want to do. First and foremost, man, I want to thank you um, you know, as a friend and, and as an individual that has done so much um, to really help to steer this conversation around our state, we, we hope and pray that you continue to inspire folks and, and continue to use your influence to help us move the needle. The last thing I wanted to, to leave us with, with there's a, a, a quote, uh, an African proverb actually, it says, if you want to run fast, run alone, but if you want to run far, run with others. And, you know, obviously a lot of this conversation today was about rebuilding and, 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 and reaching out and all these things. I guess if you could leave us with what what are what are some things that you think uh, would be good for our listeners, not just in Georgia, obviously this is a big state with a lot of counties, but what can we do to, you know, really move this needle, not just in this midterm, but obviously we all got a wake up call in twenty sixteen to do our part. So for the person listening out that doesn't feel their vote is important, that doesn't feel that their county is important, that doesn't feel like their their ballot is going to make a difference, what would you say to those people that are listening today? I mean, I think that we now have an opportunity to really transform things. And what the Democratic Party is offering right now in this state with, with Stacey Abrams and Sarah Miko and, and John Barrow and Charlie Bailey and Lindy Mill and these other folks that we've all talked about, there's something for everybody there. That's right. There's something for everybody. There's something for everybody in that group. And, and you know, it, it's exciting. And you can find a reason to get involved. If you want to make excuses hmm. about to stay home, you can. But it's so much more uh, affirming and exciting 
to acknowledge just how how uh, how many opportunities there are to do good, and and folks, you know, underestimating their own power, I think is the is the biggest the biggest sort of crime that we have, you know, is is not realizing just how powerful we are. Um, but every vote, you know, nobody's nobody's uh, nobody's vote counts any more than any other. So all those people uh, that are out there wondering whether they should vote, their vote counts the same as mine, <laughs> counts the same as yours, sure. counts the same as Jimmy Carter's, you know what I mean? Counts yeah. the same as Stacey Abrams's and, and counts the same as Donald Trump's. And and I think that that's the great equalizer is this this democratic system. And there's so many ways to get involved. There's so many ways to knock on doors or even whether you go get involved in, a, in an official Democratic Party event or not, I personally believe that the most powerful political messaging that we have now, people don't trust TV because everybody lies. People don't trust, you know, maybe the Democratic Party as a partisan uh, function, but they trust each other. Yeah. And if people would go out in their friends and their in their the group of people they go to the gym with, the people that they yeah, go to church tribes. with, yeah, whatever it is, not even tribes, just I mean the folks in their Pilates class or you know whatever. I mean the folks that that go to that bump into at the store oh, or that man. that are that coach their kids soccer teams. If they go and talk to those folks about politics just a little bit, and say, hey, just want to be sure you're going to vote, those human interactions are the most valuable things in politics and that if they if everybody who is listening just did that to the five or ten people that they know that you would change the world because those people are probably not going to vote unless you talk to them and if you do talk to them they probably are going to vote and that's a big deal i mean that's how you leverage all these things i mean that's again that's how you eradicate diseases it's how you it's how you uh, win elections Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for spending this time with us. Jason, how can they follow you on social media? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Senator Carter. Okay. And uh, everything else, man, I'll be honest, I, uh, I'm on Instagram. Okay. Um, but other than that, man, uh, you, you got to be one of my like 108 friends. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell I'm not running for office, Daniel. <laughs> well, hey, fun times. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you, Eric. Uh, thank you for all those who are listening. You're a part of our journey, and we'll be back with you with another great interview. Hey, thanks for having me.